Well, it's uh, a joy to be able just to uh, worship with you. And uh, Jordan and team, thanks for leading us so well. And to be able to celebrate that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, that he is our victor. And because he's our victor, we have victory as well. Um, It's a privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. And um, I trust that nothing that I say or do will detract from God's word and his message to our hearts this morning. And uh, I count it uh, a real honor to be able to speak with each of you today. And uh, thank you for those who've been praying for me. Today we're going to talk about purpose, about purpose. There's been lots that's been written, there's been lots that's been spoken about in terms of purpose. As I was studying this passage uh, in the past couple of weeks, there were several words that jumped out to me. And if John Grant was still on staff here at Calvary, he would hammer me for all the alliteration. But it works. These words popped out, and there are three words. As I think about purpose and studying this passage together, the word passion jumped out at me. Say passion. That wasn't very passionate. Say passion. There we go. Power. Priority. There we go. So um, as we work through this scripture together today, those are some of the topics that uh, we're going to look at as we study God's word together. But as we get going here, let's talk about passion for a minute. And my question is this, what's yours? What's your passion? I want you to think about two or three things that you say, yeah, I'm really passionate about this, about this, about this. Turn Turn to somebody close to you and tell them your top two or three passions. Go ahead. You can be honest. It's okay. What are your passions in life? What are you really passionate about? Well, I'm sure some of you um, spoke about some sports teams. A number of us are pretty passionate about, about sports. In fact, if we went out into the parking lot today, we'll probably find some bumper stickers, right? It's one of the ways you can find out what people are passionate about, what's sticking on their car somewhere. Some of us are passionate about the outdoors, fishing and hunting and golf and other activities that we can do together outdoors. Some of us are really passionate about technology. Maybe some of you said that. What about family? Are you passionate about your family? You're a grandparent, you're you're a father, you're a mom. You're passionate about family and your role and responsibility. Okay, here's a real honest one. How many said you were passionate about shopping? Come on, hey, I like the honesty, very good. The first service was not very honest, ladies. Just saying. Um, Pets. You know, don't you notice that? You you, you pull up behind somebody in a car and it's like, uh, you can tell that they're really a pet person because pets are really important. Hey, what about this one? How many of you are passionate about Jesus Christ? Amen, amen. And of course, uh, it's really important for us to understand what the scripture says about passion. So we're gonna kick off, where we're starting is in 1 Corinthians 19, and we pick up from where Pastor Steve Mills left us last week as he was talking about our rights and our freedoms, and Pastor Steve reminded us that God's word tells us this. In the area of preferences, in the area where we're not talking about sinful choices, that that those preferences, our freedoms and our rights, have to be laid before the Lordship of Christ. 
laid before the Lordship of Christ, our rights have to be considered in terms of the benefit to others, how they impact others, and then, of course, also, how do they impact the gospel of Christ and our responsibility? And that's where we left off with Pastor Steve, and the Apostle Paul, in verse 19, continues, and he says this, though I'm free and I belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the weak I became weak, and to win the weak. And then he goes on to say, verse 22, I've become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. And then this closing statement, I do all of this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessing. So you see, as we continue this week, there's our connection to where we were last week. That as we think about rights that we have to consider, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, the sake of the gospel, and then, of course, one another, the community. And then we continue on with Apostle Paul's instructions to the Corinthian church in verse 24. And he says this, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So that's different than our our current Olympics or many of our races. There's first, second, and third. But back in those days, there was just first place. That's all that was recognized. So he goes on to say, run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We were just singing about the victor's crown, the fact that Jesus Christ is our victor. And because he's our victor, we get to share in that crown. Apostle Paul says, therefore, I do not run like someone who is running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that I, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So as we look at the word passion and this passage here in 1 Corinthians 9, there's a couple things that I really want us to consider, and this is this, that the Apostle Paul is pressing into us this principle that the prize is eternal, and therefore it deserves full effort, it deserves discipline, it deserves focus. And then also we're going to see that there's no such thing as half-hearted believers, The Apostle Paul uses this athletic metaphor. We we see it several times in the New Testament. And um, the reason he does this is that the athletic games were were something that people understood. It was part of their culture. This stadium that you see here is a a stadium that was discovered and was excavated and and then restored. This is about 11 miles from Corinth uh, in a place called Demea. And in fact, you can go there, if you want to go there next June 2016, go to Greece, and you can take place, they reenact the games in a non-competitive way, and uh, you don't have to be nude, by the way, that's another point, uh, and, and they reenact the games here. Um, and uh, so the Corinthian church clearly uh, identified with this metaphor of athletics, and um, they estimate that like 50,000 people would gather around a stadium like this. And in fact, there was four stadiums. Of course, there was the, where, there was the stadium in, in Olympia, and the Olympics have, had gone on for hundreds of years already by this point, by the time that the Apostle Paul was writing. And games would cycle each year around four different locations. This was one of the locations. And close to, in Corinth, Isthmus was another place where there was a stadium as well. So the Corinthian believers knew this. And in fact, the games would happen um, 
for the Corinthian people in the second and fourth year. So the year after the Olympics and the year before the Olympics, they would have games right there uh, in their city. So it was very close to them, and they knew and understood um, what took place in these games. I grabbed these pictures from our Canadian Olympic site. And um, when you look at these pictures, these are pictures of our athletes, some of our athletes. What do you see when you look at these pictures? What do you see? Tell me. Determination. Effort. Speak loud so we can hear you. Hard work. What else? Pain. Yeah. Action. Yeah. So when we, when we look at a professional athlete, when we look at an, an Olympic athlete, we see determination, we see focus, we see hard work, we see fa- a sacrifice. And so in the same way that athletics mean, meant something to the Apostle Paul's audience, it means something to us. It's something that we can identify with, and so there's some great principles. So as we move on, here's the question I want to ask us. That, that passage we just read, it talked about winning a prize. Run in such a way that you win a prize. What's the prize? What is it? Well, of course, in the Olympics, it looks something like this. This was the Sochi gold medal. And, of course, everybody's going for gold. And this medal actually isn't made of pure gold. In fact, there's only like five or six grams of gold in this, uh, and the rest is made up of silver. It's worth just over 500 bucks. And, of course, we know that there's a lot more of the reward in terms of uh, bursaries and bonuses and all that kind of stuff. But there it is. There's the prize. There's the medal in our current Olympics. And that's what it looks like. And, uh, but what kind of prize is the Apostle Paul talking about? I want to take us to a passage in Philippians. And the reason I'm taking us here is this is the only other place in the New Testament where the exact word prize that's in our passage from 1 Corinthians 9. This is the only other place that exact word is used. So here's Philippians 3, 12 to 14. The Apostle Paul says this, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not want you to consider that I've made it on my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of what? The upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So this word in 1 Corinthians 9, and then it's used again in, first, uh, in Philippians 3, is clearly identified here in this patch that the prize is heaven, that the prize is the upward call of Christ. Next word I want us to consider when the Apostle Paul is talking about the race In addition to the prize, there's a crown. There's a crown. Now, this one's kind of easy for for me to remember. My name's Steve, Stephen. And the crown, the word Greek here is Stephanos. That kind of sounds Italian when I said it that way. But the crown that was given to the, the victor was a wreath. It was a wreath. And depending on the location that you were, and depending on the gods that were directly associated with that location, it was a different kind of wreath. In one area, it would be a pine wreath. In another area, it would be olive leaves, olive branches. In another area, it would be celery leaves. What do you think of that, Pastor Calvin? Here's your crown. Have some celery. You know, no passion about that, he says. And look at the language the Apostle Paul is saying. When you're competing for a crown, the crown 
today is perishable. A crown made up of greenery is going to what? It's going to wither and it's going to die. But there's a crown that the Apostle Paul is talking to. Part of the prize that he's talking about is one that doesn't perish. Let's look at a few passages of Scripture. I'm going to take you to 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8. 2 Timothy 4, 7 to 8, where he says, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of what? Righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not to me only. Again, in the, in the Olympic Games, in the games of Corinth, there would be just one winner. But our, our games are different. Not just to me only, but also to those who have longed for his appearing. James 1, verse 12. Let's go there. James 1, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive what? The crown of, the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. It's not perishable. It's not temporary. It's eternal. And then look at Revelations 2, chapter 2, verse 10, where it says this, don't be afraid about what you're going to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in, prisoner to test, in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But then he says this, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. I will give you life as your victor's crown. So we see here that the prize is what? Heaven. And the crown that he's talking about is not a bunch of leaves that are going to wither and die, but it's a crown of righteousness. It's a crown of life. It's an eternal prize that God has saved us to. And the point Paul is making here is that this race is important. This is the kind of race you have to run a certain kind of way. It's not one that you can be passive about. It's not one you can sit in the stands and say, hey, I feel great about this race. It's one that has eternal consequences, one that's very important because of the prize, because of the crown. Now, there's one more word I want us to look at in this passage, and it's this. The Apostle Paul raises the concern, he raises the possibility of disqualification. So I think we need to ask, what in the world is disqualification? What does he mean by that? And I think there's three possibilities, and they all have merit. The first possibility, because Paul has been talking about his witness, his desire to do things for the sake of the gospel, one possibility in our study book that we're working with raises this one. And it's the possibility that our, our witness, our testimony of the gospel will be hurt because of the way that we run the race. It's one possibility. The second possibility is a reference to rewards. And earlier in our study in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read and we learned that as believers, there will come a time when what we have done for Christ will be evaluated. It will be tested. And it will be deemed as, as whether it's worthy or worthless. And it talks about the fact that if you're in a situation where what you've done for the kingdom hasn't been worthy, that that will be burned away. That won't survive. You'll survive, but, you're, but you're, you, the rewards will not be there for worthless work. That's the second possibility for disqualification. But I think there's a third possibility that John Piper raises that's very important for us to consider. And it's based on this kind of a dis disqualification. Some people... 
Some people think that they're running a race. Some people think that they are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're not. Turn with me to, to Matthew 7. This verse is uh, on the screen as well. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. Now, keep in mind, the prize is what? Heaven. And the crown is what? Righteousness and life. So if that's what the competition is about. Disqualification means something perhaps even more important. Matthew 7, Christ says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And did we not drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will say to them, this is the Lord talking, the Lord Jesus Christ, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Now let's look at two verses there. Chapter 13, 2 Corinthians, verses 5 and 6. Again, speaking to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul says this, Examine yourselves. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do, no, do you not realize that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail that test. And I trust that you will discover that you have not failed the test. This is the same word as disqualifying that we read earlier. Failing the test. The word actually means it's not approved. It's not up to the standard. The word was used in terms of evaluating coins and metal. Is it, is it the real thing? Is it the authentic thing? Now, I don't want, if you're here and you were a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are called to examine yourself. I'm called to examine yourself. We're all called to examine ourselves. I'm not suggesting that believers can lose their salvation. I want to be very clear about that. But the Apostle Paul and the Scriptures are teaching us it's very important that we understand that we are in the right race. It's very important that we understand that true faith, saving faith, results in something very special. It results in disciplined obedience that demonstrates a very secure guarantee of what the outcome of the race is going to be. How we run the race, how we live our lives authenticates that we're running the right way and that we're guaranteed to win, that we are Christ's. And because of that, it's fatal for us to think that we can embrace all the benefits of grace, embrace God's love and forgiveness, but sit on the sidelines and think we can just live our lives however we, way we want. Thinking that just because forgiveness is there, we've got a license to sin. Christ is going to forgive me. I can live my, way, my life the way I want to. That's a fatal mistake. And, and end up sitting on the sidelines and being disqualified. I want to be clear, however, that disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ are forever secure in Him. Hear the words of Christ in John 10, where Jesus Christ says this, I know my disciples, and they are known by me. Jesus Christ says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So we're not talking about a disqualification for the believer where he, he or she loses their salvation, but we're talking about a potential disqualification of people who think that they're in the race, but they're not in the race, or they're in the wrong race. So how do we run the race? How do we run the race? We need to run like Olympians. We need to run like Olympians. We need to train for maximum performance. 
We need to live with passionate perseverance. And what does that take? That takes something very special, discipline, self-control, and sacrifice. I want you to think about, about Olympians for a moment. Think of what they have to go through to compete. Think of the way that they train. Think about the way that they live with passionate perseverance, how dedicated they are, and what it takes to be a successful athlete. You know, when you hear the word disciple, we often disconnect that from discipline. Think about that for a moment. Disciple and discipline. How many of us love discipline? That's what I thought. Yeah, kind of uncomfortable. I think the answer is supposed to be I put my hands up. We don't like discipline. But disciples are pupils, are learners, are people who are studying under, under, under the mentorship of someone above them, in our case, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord is shaping us, but calls us to live our lives as believers like Olympic athletes. And just like for the Corinthians, often we can look to that metaphor of, of that sports analogy of competition, of running the race, of boxing, and, and make that connection to what the spiritual principle is here. I don't know how many of you have heard the story of, uh, of Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens was uh, an athlete. He was born in 1913, born as a grandson of a slave born into a very poor, impoverished area. As a young boy, a seven-year-old, he had to go out into the fields and pick cotton. And then the youth of a seven-year-old would bring back these hundred-pound bags of cotton. And though he was disadvantaged in his economic situation because of his color, all of these things that were against him, there was something that Jesse could do really well, and he could run. He could run really, and he ended up getting into the, the uh, university athletic program at Ohio State. But that situation back then in the 1920s was very different than it is now. And of course, we know that we still have racial tensions, but back then, as an athlete, he was not allowed to live on campus. He couldn't eat with his fellow athletes. He wasn't given any scholarship. He was on his own. And yet, in spite of that atmosphere, Jesse Owens went on to the Olympic Games in the 1930s, 1936, in Nazi Germany, Berlin. And he competed in front of Hitler and all of the other athletes that were being presented as the Aryan of superiority, the superhumans of, of how Germany wanted at that time to present a new mindset. So despite his background and despite that worldview and that horrible environment, Jesse went on to win four gold medals at that Olympics. In fact, he set two world records at that Olympics, and his record in long jump lasted for 25 years. We get inspired when we hear stories about that. It means something to us. But here was this, here was this guy who came from nothing, and he achieved something. He was called the Buckeye Bullet. And here's a phrase he had. We all have dreams, but in order to make dreams come into reality, it takes an awful lot of determination, dedication, self-discipline, and effort. Here's the reality for the Christian. If we have Jesus, we win. If we have Jesus, we win. But that causes us to ask the next question, how do I maximize my passion for the Lord Jesus Christ, for God? What are the areas, for example, like prayer and scripture and worship and fellowship? 
what are these things that we, that we need to consider? We looked at that passage, Hebrews 12, let us throw everything off and focus our eyes on who? The Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. faith. So the prize is eternal, deserves full effort, discipline, and focus. There's no such thing as half-hearted believers. As we study this, this passage, we're prompted to say, what, Lord, what do I need to focus on in terms of maximizing that athletic focus and passion for you? Prayer, Scripture, service, fellowship. What are some other things? Obedience, holiness. So that's a little bit about passion. Let's look at the next word, power. Passion and power. As, as we move along, we're now in 1 Corinthians 10. So we just go over the chapter, and let's look together at verses 1 to 5. Verses 1 to 5, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and listen to this, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So as the Apostle Paul is, is finishing up with this, uh, this analogy of what it means to compete to run for Christ, he goes to a lesson, a lesson from history. And in this particular case, we see five blessings that the people of Israel had. Look at them with me. The first one is they were all under the cloud. That cloud represented the guidance and protection of God. The Shekinah glory of God was with them, was with them as a people. Look at the next one. They passed through the sea. Many of us know that story that as they were leaving Egypt and the Egyptians followed them, their enemies, that the Lord provided a way of an escape, a way of salvation. They passed through dry lands, and of course, their enemies were destroyed in the sea. The next blessing they had was that they were baptized into Moses and in the cloud and the sea. In other words, they were, they were blessed by the, the leadership that God had put together for them. They were united under God, under Moses. What a blessing. And then, of course, it talks about their spiritual food. They got to eat manna from heaven. They were provided for by God spiritual drink. And it's significant that, that uh, the Apostle Paul identifies that Jesus Christ was the spiritual source of that drink for them. And yet, despite all of that, they blew it. They failed. They were disqualified. Their bodies were scattered in the desert, all except for two. Everybody over 20, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb, were, died in the desert. Numbers 14 is that story. So let's look to the next little section of verses. Come with me to verse number six. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to engage, indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. We had five blessings. Look at the next five failures. They did their desire for evil, verse 5. Idolatry, verse 7. 
engaging in sexual immorality, verse 8. And then as we look down in verse 9, we see them testing God, testing his purpose, testing his plan, testing his love. And verse 10, grumbling and rebelling against the leaders. And if you want to, to read more about those stories, Numbers uh, 25 um, is the story about how God's people engaged with the Moabite women, the pagan women. They went to their temples. They ate in the temples. They were part of that atmosphere, and they engaged in idolatry, and they engaged in sexual immorality, and there was judgment on them. Numbers 11 and 16 give us those other stories of how fire came from heaven and consumed, and the earth swallowed up and consumed uh, those who had disobeyed God. So the consequences were very significant. So the Apostle Paul is bringing this lesson forward from history and saying, hey, these are examples for us. Look at verse 11. These things happened as examples and were written down as warnings for us, on whom the culmination of the age has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful. Be careful you do not fall. Now here's some good news. But no temptation has overtaken you except that's what's common to man. And God is faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that we can endure it. You see, the problem in the Corinthian church, the problem sometimes we find is we, we get an overconfidence, a false security in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people are attracted to the message of salvation to be forgiven from sin, but then assume that now that's a license for me to live my life however the way I, For God is loving. He will forgive me. I can live however I want. I can indulge my sinful nature. And this is what happened with the Israelites. And Paul points them, as he's talking about the way to run this race, he points them back to this history lesson and says, we need to learn from this. We need to learn from this. But the great news is that the Lord Jesus Christ has gone before us as our victor and allows us to overcome. Temptation should be expected in our lives as believers. Temptation is going to be there, but deliverance is always available, and so we are called to resist and to flee. Another principle that comes out of the verses that follow is that this, you cannot mix the cup of Christ and the cup of demons. We're going to talk about that in a moment. A few warnings that, that I think we need to apply to our situations. Number one, just because we are hanging together in God's community or you're hanging together in God's community, that doesn't mean necessarily that you are connected to the source. These, these, the Israelites, they were being fed by God. They had His glory leading them and surrounding them. They had leadership provided, and yet they still were not connected in their hearts to God. Another warning Sacred ritual, as important as it is, for example, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What was happening in, in the Corinthian church is they would go and partake of the Lord's Supper and think, okay, now I've got the power to just um, be part of sinful things but not let it affect me. Sacral ritual, like baptism and the Lord's table, is not a substitute for holy living. You can't just come and be, get in this tank and get baptized. You can't just come when we gather together and eat and drink and participate in the fellowship of the Lord's table and then just go live however you want. This is the point that Paul is making. You can't mix the cup of Christ with the cup of demons. You have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. Is it Christ or demons? So here's some questions for us. 
Who are we entangled with? Who are we entangled with? Who do we fellowship with? Who do you submit to? The Christian race is not an excuse just to live our lives however we want, to indulge in whatever we want. Now, we know that temptation is real, but this passage reminds us that temptation, in the context of temptation, God always provides a way out. Listen to James 1.12. We read it earlier. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, under temptation, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love them. So Satan uses temptation to draw us in to sin. God uses temptations to refine us and to purify us. So if you look at verse 21, it just reminds us you can't get plugged into both. You can't drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. How many of you lost power on the Friday night? All right, pretty dark, right? Power goes out here, we realize what it's like to live without power. Um, Ben, my son, and I went hunting with a great group of guys last week. We didn't get the prize, just put that out there. Uh, But we had a great week together. And uh, it was outstanding. It was, it was up north of Bancroft, about an hour north of Bancroft. Beautiful setting, lake there, just gorgeous country that God provided for us. And we had this log cabin, no running water, no electricity. It was a great time with the boys roughing it, roughing it. But anyways, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, Paul, had brought along uh, a generator, which was great. So, you know, 5 o'clock, it starts to get pretty dark. You saw how dark it was here in the city when you lost the power on Friday night, for those of you that experienced that. Well, up, up where we were, it's dark, dark, dark. Stars, beautiful, but dark. Anyways, uh, Paul hooks up this great little generator, and we've got light in the cabin. All right. Three light bulbs, we've got light, and it was great. And we're feeling pretty good. The stove is keeping us warm. We've got water from the lake, drinking water we brought up. Life is pretty comfortable. Next morning, we got up and uh, we made, had a great breakfast. I think it was bacon and eggs and toast. Now, the guys made the toast kind of over the fire and over the gas stove that was there. But the next morning, or maybe the morning after, we discovered that there was a toaster sitting there in the cabin. Well, we brought lots of bread for toast. We had like six pounds of bacon for the week. So there was another bacon and eggs with toast. And so we thought, hey, we got the generator. We got the lights going. Let's plug the toaster in. And it was one of these four, these four um, slice toasters. Four pieces of bread went in. Away it goes. All of a sudden, eh, 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 generator's out. Gone. No power. We thought, okay, well, maybe it'll handle two slices of bread. <laughs> so we downsized our expectations, went down to two slices of bread. That little generator, it was great for running three light bulbs, and it was so fantastic to have at night in the early mornings when there was no light. But there was not enough power in that generator to run that toaster. That's often how we live our lives as believers. We're not connected to the right power source. Our power source is the Lord Jesus Christ. And fixing that connection, the Apostle Paul gives us some very clear instructions. Verse 7, he says this, don't. Three don'ts. Don't be idolaters. Don't engage in sexual immorality, and don't put Christ to the test. Verse 7, 8, and 9, those are listed right there. Don't grumble. And then he gives us three steps that we need to do. Verse 12, take heed. He's reminding us that there's a danger of overconfidence. Take heed. 
A lot of us think when, we, when it comes to a sinful society around us, hey, I can handle it. I grew up in a rough neighborhood. I can handle it. I can handle being involved in sin. I can be, handle being around people who are involved. Now, we are called to be a light to the world. Absolutely. But we are not, we are called to flee and resist evil, right? Take heed, verse 13, resist and overcome evil, and then flee, verse 14. Practical stuff for us, do's and don'ts. This is how we get, make sure that we are connected to the right power source. It's Christ or it's demons. The Apostle Paul says this, hey, look, idols are nothing. Idols are just made, they've been fashioned out of wood and stone. They're, they're nothing, but the demonic power behind them is something. We read, of course, in God's Word that we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. But praise God as we were just celebrating in our worship that Jesus Christ has overcome. But there is a defeated enemy, and he is our enemy, and he is seeking to distract and to destroy the church. So we're to take heed, we're to resist and overcome, and we're to flee. Here's how this works. As we fellowship with Christ, and as we submit to his authority as our power source, we are nourished by his strength, and we get his power, we receive his power to flee from sin and to resist temptation. We need to make sure that we are connected to the right power source. Well, let's, let's, let's go to the next principle here, the next word, which is prior. We've talked about passion. How do, I, how do I live my life like an Olympic athlete in my passion for God and His things? That we need to be plugged into the power source of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Paul wraps this all, all together in terms of instruction about priority. What are our priorities? And if we look at verse 23 to 24, and then as, as we look at 31, we see these principles. The Apostle Paul says this, you live for God's glory. Everything falls under that number one priority. For the believer, it's, it's for God and for God alone. And then secondly, that we, that we live to bring honor to Him, but we also point people to Christ for the good of others. As we imitate Christ, as we follow Him as disciples, as we imitate Him, we point others to Christ. And we have to very, now, now we're bringing back this whole question of freedom and liberty, and this is how the Apostle Paul brings it from last week where we were studying to this week, it all comes to this, glory of God and the benefits of others and the sake of the gospel. We don't just live for ourselves in our liberty. Some practical stuff. How do we navigate our freedom in Christ? When we're, when we're passionate about our relationship with the Lord, when we're plugged into Christ as the power source so we can live victoriously, then how do we navigate our freedom? And we're not talking again about sin choices. We're talking about this whole area of preferences, what we get to choose in the broad area that Christ has given us discretion with. And here's some principles. Chapter 9, verse 23, where we started, the Apostle Paul's heart was first about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Does it benefit the gospel? Chapter 9, verse 23. Then in chapter 10, where we are right now, in verse 23 as well, there's two questions. Is it helpful? Is it helpful and does it build up the community? Look at verse 24. Verse 24 points out this principle, this question, is it good for my neighbor? Is it good for my neighbor? And then finally, in the latter part of this chapter, he comes back to the weaker believer, and here's the question, does it violate the conscience of the weaker brother who raised the concern? Now, 
they, all of this was set in the context of food and drink and stuff that was being offered to idols. And the Apostle Paul breaks the instructions in the last part here of uh, 1 Corinthians 10 into simple things. He says, first of all, you're not going to the temple. You're not going to the place and participating in the activities that are directly part of the worship and idolatry of demons. No way. So that's the first thing he points out in verses 8 and 14. And then he says this, if you go to the marketplace and you're buying your stuff at the marketplace, verses 25 and 26, he says, hey, look, you can eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising a concern on the grounds of conscience. And his principle is this, because whatever God has made clean, no one can contaminate. So that was a practical instruction for the church then. But then he brings it back, however, when you're in a home situation, you can eat whatever is put in front of you not worrying about whether it was offered to, to uh, idols or not. However, if the concern is raised, he points out in verses 27 and 28, if the concern is, is raised for the good, for the conscience of that weaker brother, defer, abstain. Some practical principles. For the glory of God, he sums it up with. It's all, verse 31, it's everything we do has got to be done for the glory of God. Verse 33, for the benefit of others and also for the building of God's kingdom. Here's the point of this. For, for those of us that are believers, God's Word in the areas that we're not talking about sin, in the areas of preferences and choices, part of our freedom in Christ, God's Word's not calling us to, to change our convictions about those preferences. But God's Word is calling us to the potential of altering our behavior for the good of others, for the good of the weaker b- believer, for the benefit of the body. So here's, here's the question I want us to walk away with when we think about priority. We've talked about passion. We've talked about power. We think about priority is, am I imitating Christ in a way that others should imitate me? We call ourselves Christ followers. We call ourselves disciples. But am I imitating Christ in a way that I would want others to say, look to my example? This is the example that, that Paul is giving to us here. Wrapping this up. Passion. We need to have a passion, a passion that's demonstrated in the way that we live, and that we live to win the prize, the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus to heaven. We need to, we need to live with passion to win that crown of righteousness, that crown of life. And we do, the only way that we can do that is by being connected to Christ's power. And when we're connected to Christ's power, we live in victory. It would be a tragedy if you come out of this auditorium this morning and say, okay, God's word says, I got to do better. I got to try harder. Works are important. You can try that all you want, but if you don't have God's power in you, and if you haven't connected passionately in your heart to Jesus Christ to have his spirit living in you, it's not going to happen. This is not about works. That's why the first principle is all about the heart. It's about, passion is about the heart. And when our heart is right and we have that passion for the Lord, and He is our Lord and Savior, now we can be connected to the power source. But we've got to get rid of sin in our lives. And we can't just assume that participating in the community and sacred rituals and all the good things that can happen in Christian community is just going to give us an immunity pill to live however we want in sin. Serve Christ, serve Christ alone. And then finally, that we live with the priority that everything that we do, everything that we do is for God's glory and for the benefit of others, for his gospel.
So I hope this morning as you've heard God's word that you will not be in either of those extremes, that you will not think, hey, I just have to try harder. Or maybe some of you have heard all of this and say, you know, this is too hard for me. There's no way I can live my life like an Olympic athlete. Forget it. I can't do it. And you're just feeling defeated. Here's the solution. As we looked at that that warning of God's people of Israel of how they disobeyed him and how they failed him, that warning was used over and over and over again in Scripture. In Psalm 95 and then in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, that warning is referred to about how people harden their hearts. And, And here's what God said to them. Today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your heart. God's word is authoritative, it's corrective, it's instructional to us. That's that whole idea of discipline. When we hear God's word, when we hear God's voice, how are you going to respond? There's only two responses. You're either going to open up your heart to say, Lord, you know what? This is, this is too hard for me, but the good news is I can live in victory because of you. Or you're going to say, no, I, I don't want to let go of my sinful choices. I don't want to let go of my preferences because I, I don't care if it hurts anybody else. They're my preferences. I want to live in that kind of freedom. But no, God is calling us. God is calling us as a church to say, yes, will you live in passion? Will you live in my power? Will you, will you live for my priority? Listen, some of you maybe are here And when I was talking about being disqualified, when I was encouraging you to examine yourself as the Apostle Paul did, you say, you know what, Steve? I thought I was a believer, but I I understand now that that my choices around wanting forgiveness of sin was just about me living my life the way I wanted to. Jesus Christ is not my Lord. Jesus Christ is not my Savior. We would want nothing better than to introduce you to Jesus Christ in a personal way so that you can have his passion, so that you can be connected to his power in your life. For those of us who are believers today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. I'm going to ask the worship team to come, and as we close, we're going to sing a song that, that, that declares that the only way for us to do this is God's way, and the only way for us to do it right is to be enabled by God through his power and through his strength. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite us to stand, and as we sing, would you use this time as an opportunity to hear God's voice? Do not harden your voice, your hearts. Respond to the Holy Spirit this morning.
together and we've just sung oh lord i need you and if you're in that place where you have sung that from your heart understanding with your mind exactly what that means the question is what's next for some of us it's it's confession and repentance it's time to say lord this sin that i've been indulging in has got to go and through your power i'm going to confess I'm going to repent of that sin, and through your power, I'm going to live a victorious life because I have the victor's crown through the Lord Jesus Christ. For some of us, we've been uh, failing God in a different way. It's not just a, a specific sin that was listed here, but it's a hard attitude. It's a choice to live my life my way, my priorities, my preferences rather than God's. So as we close, I'm just going to ask our team to lead us in that simple hymn, I Surrender All. And listen, if you're here this morning and you have not yet met the Lord Jesus Christ, if he is not your personal Lord and Savior, would you come and and meet with someone on our team? We'll have pastors and pastors' wives here and deacons and deacons and wives here available and ready to, but you come. If you want someone to pray with, you come. While we're singing this song, you come. For those of you that are believers that you need to do some work right here, right now with the Lord, you want to pray, pray by yourself, pray with somebody, have a brother or sister come around and pray with you. You come. We're just going to keep this area open, but let's sing, Lord, I said I need you, but now I surrender it all. I confess. I surrender. All to Jesus I
to keep this area open. If you want to come and pray, the opportunity is here for you. It's been great to be together as God's people. Amen. And again, if, if you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ, would you make that choice today? Don't leave here without having that question settled in your life. And now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding great joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. God bless you.